0: Good morning. Today's Bible reading is Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15. So let's just pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come and meet together in freedom today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and all his writings and his teachings and that we can learn so much from him. Father, we pray that you'll be with James as he opens the word for us this morning, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to what you are teaching us and to what you want us to do. Be with us now as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So just prior to this passage, Paul has had a vision where he's been called to Macedonia. So Acts 16, starting at verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace, and the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Theretia named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us.
1: All right, good morning again everyone, how are we doing? Not too bad, parents so excited for the school holidays, yeah. Kids excited for the school holidays? Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, kids, I'm so glad that you guys are in the service this morning because uh, it gives me permission to have all sorts of fun that normally I have to defend, but this morning, no need. Uh, so kids, what do you think of when you see this? Captain America. Captain America. That's right, Tommy. Well done. All right. Now, it's a powerful symbol, right? As soon as you see it, even if you're not A person who's necessarily the biggest fan of Marvel, you probably look at this and know what it is signifying. So, kids, I have a question. Uh, Is this Captain America? Is it? Is it, or is it someone that just looks like him? That's definitely him. Okay, Maddie, we've got some work to do later, buddy. We'll talk about that. Uh, All right. This is somebody who's got the symbol of being Captain America, but is not necessarily there yet. Kids, no offense to your awesome dress-ups at school and all that sort of stuff. The thing is, there is somebody who is the original Captain America, and in some ways, that shield has become symbolic and a powerful symbol in the comics world, but also more broadly through the films and all that sort of stuff because of the characteristics of that person who carries the shield. The symbol has meaning because of the person who carries it. And it's been a funny thing. In the comics, this has been a theme that's sort of been explored again and again because at different times, different people have actually carried that shield. And each of them, at one time or another, have had to wrestle with this idea of what does it mean to carry this symbol, to carry this shield? Am I worthy? Do I actually fulfill what this symbol communicates? symbols are powerful things, but there are these questions about whether you do it. Even if you might have seen the the television show uh, that followed on from the movies Falcon and Winter Soldier, at one point, these three characters, all of which who might be the next person to carry the shield after Steve Rogers moves on, at one point one of them says, just because you carry the shield doesn't make you Captain America. There's a difference between symbols, even though they're powerful and have meaning, And the actual reality that they are meant to represent. And this morning, what we're going to be looking at is baptism, which is a powerful symbol, but it's imbued with meaning not because of the thing in and of itself, but because of that which it represents. And for Christians, for the entire history of Christianity, and even going back further for God's people, baptism has been a really powerful and important symbol. But it's something where, unless we understand the power behind the symbolism, unless we understand what the symbolism represents, it's just water. It's just this ritual that we sort of go through. And so, it's really important for us as a Christian community to understand what baptism is. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. Now, kids, I'm going to get you guys to help me out in a couple of spots. I'm going to be looking for some excellent readers to come up and help me in a little bit. So if that's you and you're big and brave and you want to come and help me with some reading, just, you know, steal your nerves now. Uh, But I'll get you guys up in a little bit. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to work through why baptism is important, what it is, who can be baptized, how do we baptize, and how it is important but not essential, but what that means for us in practice. So first up, to say that baptism is important. Okay. First reason that baptism is important is a really, really simple one. It's because Jesus told us to do it. All right. He said his final words before he departed to go and be with the Father after his death and resurrection. Jesus said, "Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." This was the great commission. This was the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. Not just go forth and make disciples, but go forth and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. But baptism was an essential part of the mission that Jesus gave to the early leaders of the church. Which gives us the second reason why baptism is a really important thing. It's because the early church continued this practice. They took Jesus' words seriously. And so we've got lots of descriptions of baptism. And this is what I want the kids to uh, help me with. Now, I've got a few passages that you guys might be brave enough uh, to read. So who's keen, guys? Who's keen to come up and have a read? Oh, I'm just not expecting a lot. La- okay, Noah, good. Yep, Micah, good. Ella, cool. Maddie, sure. All right. Now, you're going to have to do this in order. So if I give it to you, this is the order in which you are reading it. Otherwise, it's going to mix up the slides. All right, so good. One, Two, three, four. Okay. Oh, I forgot to go to the microphone off you uh, guys before. Sorry, Hannah. Thank you. Meant to do that. My bad. Oh, Selena's already on the way. Wow, what a, what a hero. Thank you. All right. So let's have a couple of read uh, reading of some of these. Uh, we had a short reading before. But we're going to do a few more now. So, Micah, you go ahead and read there. But you can read what's on the page, but it's on the screen behind you. All right, awesome. So, the very first sermon after what we call Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came upon the disciples, Peter preached that first sermon. They said, Oh my goodness, we we are responsible for crucifying the Messiah. What should we do? Peter gives them two commands repent, which means to turn away from their sins, and be baptized. Awesome. All right, no. But then they believed Philip as he reached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptised, he continued with Philip. Okay, so again, another example from the book of Acts as the gospel is going forth, as they're proclaiming the good news about Jesus, as people come to faith, the very next thing they do, like the very next thing, right, is to be baptised. Awesome. Maddie. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'See, here is water.' What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. All right, so we've got the story of, the, of Philip, who's preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch hears the good news of the gospel. He literally sees some water along the side of the road, and he's like, what's to stop me from getting baptized now? And Philip's all like, nothing, let's do it. And so they jumped down, baptized him right there on the spot. And last one for the kids.
0: Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised and taking food, he was strengthened.
1: All right, so Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, all right, he's had that incredible experience on the road to Damascus where the Lord appears to him, speaks to him. He goes and meets with Ananias, and upon hearing the good news, what does he do? Very first thing, rise and be baptized. Okay, so we see really clearly that baptism is an essential part of this stuff. Kids, let's give these guys a hand. Well done, kids. Very good reading. Thank you. I'll take them back. Thank you. Good job, good job, good job. All right. Uh, No, thanks. You're good. All right. A couple more really quick. Okay. Peter declares that would anyone withhold water for baptizing these people when talking about the Gentiles? So as he's going through... Baptism was a Jewish practice from the Old Testament. Originally, when the Gentiles, the non Jewish people, started to become Christian, Peter says this is for them also. Okay, we've got the story of Lydia, which Norel read for us just before, where again, upon hearing the gospel, the Lord opens her heart and she is baptized. All right, we've got the story of the Philippian jailer uh, who, upon realizing that he did not need to uh, take his own life because Paul and Barnabas had not fled when the Lord had shaken the foundations of the prisons. He comes to faith. He and his whole household are baptized along also. Again and again and again, we see in the early church, they took Jesus' words very seriously. And going forth from there, it wasn't just an early church thing. Baptism has continued to be a practice that the church has gone through for the last 2,000 years. So baptism is really important. But what is baptism. We see it up front fairly regularly as people come along and we welcome them into the church through that. But if I asked any of you to sort of explain off the top of your head what is baptism, uh, I'm sure that we'd get different answers. And that's part of the interesting thing here is that Christians have actually disagreed a little bit over what baptism actually represents and that informs the different practices that different denominations actually work out in their church services and the way they do ministry and all this sort of thing. So I'll get to that and uh, unpack that a little bit more in a minute, but let's start off by looking at baptism here and what sort of stuff we're talking about when we talk about it. So first up, uh, the Greek word baptizo, baptismo means originally uh, washing or plunging into water. Initially, in ancient context, in the Old Testament, it sort of had the idea of to dip uh, or immerse, but as time went on, it sort of took on this other meaning of just more broadly cleanse or wash okay it 's always been a rite of initiation it 's marked some sort of entrance uh, into something that 's always been a part of the baptism experience, whether it 's into new life or a new community or something like that and it 's also what we call a sacrament, which is a, a fancy word which means a means of experiencing god 's grace now. That's actually what we're doing both this week and next week. We're looking at what we call the sacraments. We've got baptism this week and next week we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. And both of these things are signs and seal of the covenant of grace. They don't actually have power in themselves but they're symbols of the work of the Spirit. Now, like I said, Wade is going to be preaching on the Lord's Supper next week. Uh, Wade's doing a lot of work in this space and understands it well. There's all sorts of stuff that that the Lord's Supper is outside of just what we do here in church, and it's really good for us to understand that background. But now we take it to be a sacrament, a means in which we regularly experience God's grace. If it's a symbol, though, like I said at the beginning, what is the meaning of this symbol? What does it actually symbolize? Well, I'm going to put four things up here, and we're going to work through them. But essentially, there's agreement on these first two. Everyone in Christian circles sort of agrees that baptism has something to do with symbolizing the cleansing of sin through Christ's death, and also union with Christ in his death and resurrection. But then these next two, depending on which denomination you sort of come from, now, it's not just Baptists and Presbyterians, it's more broad than this, but just for simplicity's sake, I've put them up there, but Christians have actually disagreed or debated what the symbolism is. And so we're going to work through each of them as well so that you understand how Christians have thought about this, and I'll explain why Presbyterians sort of see it the way that we do here. But first up, uh, the cleansing of sin through Christ's death. So we get this idea uh, going way back to the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. So we often read this passage out when we do baptisms here. It says in Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So we see this pairing of these two different ideas, the idea of sprinkling clean water, which sort of has these symbols and rituals that are connected to some of the things that they used to do in the temple back in the day and that sort of stuff and in the tabernacle. But here, this idea of sprinkling or cleansing with water is being linked to the idea of being given a new heart. There's a cleansing that's taking place on a heart level as well. And we see the same sort of pairing happening in the New Testament. So again, when we see uh, the Apostle Paul going from Saul to being Paul and being baptized, he's told to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, the reality of how our sins are taken away, is through faith in Christ. It's not the washing of water itself that does that. But you can see here the way that baptism and that practice of water being either poured out, sprinkled, or immersed. We'll talk about that later. But that practice of water cleansing representing the spiritual reality that takes place when we call upon the name of Jesus And we also see the same imagery being used in Titus where he says that uh, Jesus saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, to be fair, that word for washing there is not baptismo. It's a a different uh, word. But we still have that imagery of washing being connected to this idea of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So first thing that baptism is a symbol of is the cleansing of sin through Christ's death. It's a cleansing of our spirit that's symbolized in baptism. Next one. We've got union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Okay? So it's a symbol of the cleansing of sin, but it's also a symbol of our union with Christ. And we get this primarily uh, through Romans chapter 6. So it says there, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us, Who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Some people disagree over whether it's actually talking about water baptism or not. Here, I think it is, but either way, we still see this symbolic linking between the idea of being baptized into Christ Jesus, whether it's the water baptism or spiritual baptism, and being linked to joining Him in His death. And Paul goes on; he says, "We were therefore buried with Him." through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection life like his. So the idea here is, is that when we're baptized into Christ Jesus, when we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's recognizing that we are, entering into or joining into relationship with him. There's now a union that exists between us. And one of the main ideas that we see the New Testament authors focusing on is this union that we have with Christ, that it's being joined to Christ, that all the benefits and blessings of salvation are ours. We can't claim them on our own strength. They're not given us to, to us directly. There's more this idea that as we're joined to Jesus, everything that's rightfully his, we are now blessed with also, not by virtue of anything that we have done, but through our union with him. And so baptism, marking that entrance into relationship with Jesus there, which is only properly established by faith, and we'll talk about that in a second, it's a symbol of that union that we now have with him. There's a dying and arising again, and that's what we're representing there. All right, so those are the things that everyone sort of agrees on. All right, we've got those first two, cleansing of sin through Christ's death and union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Faith is the particularly Baptist distinctive, and I think it's worth talking about because for lots of you guys, uh, you either come from a Baptist background and have never really thought about this too much, or you might have a really distinct conviction on this space, and can I just say that's, that's totally okay. Uh, there's nothing that requires you to be uh, totally on board with a Presbyterian view of baptism in order to be a member here at church. All right? we, there, there is absolutely freedom of liberty here. Uh, but not for me, because I've made certain promises with regards to this stuff. And so it shapes the way that I do things, and we can absolutely make that work, and that's totally cool. But it is important that you know where this stuff comes from. And if you haven't thought about it before, if you've just sort of adopted some of this stuff, because lots of you will say to you, what do you think baptism represents? And you'll say, well, it's a public declaration of faith. And I'll be like, mm, maybe. Uh, this is why. All right. So this is the reason that Baptists take this approach. Okay. They point to passage after passage in scripture, where we see somebody come to faith, where they believe, and then they are baptized. All right, so if you, you look at uh, Baptist arguments for this, they'll say it was only after the Samaritans believed they were baptized. After the Ethiopian eunuch embraced the good news, then he was baptized. After Paul heard the good news, he was baptized. After Cornelius and his household believed they were baptized, although you might want to argue about that one a little bit. Uh, it was only after God opened Lydia's heart that she believed and her household were baptised. It was only after the disciples of John accepted Paul's teaching about Jesus that they were baptised. So they would point to this and say, look, it's actually really clear. It's always faith and then baptism. Now, that's a totally legit biblical position. But at the same time, it's also to a certain extent and what we would might call an argument from silence because where Baptists end up landing is... The only baptism that is legitimate is a baptism that follows faith and constitutes the first act of discipleship made by a responsible person who's decided to follow Jesus. What that means is you have to be of sound mind and old enough to know what you're doing so that you can choose to be baptized in order for that baptism to be valid because they see this practice in Scripture of faith, then baptism. That's what a valid baptism is. But here's the thing. In Scripture just because something's positively described, it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the only way that a thing can actually happen. Okay, So to say that this is the only way is kind of an argument from silence because there's nothing in the New Testament that prohibits, as we'll talk about in a second, something like infant baptism or somebody being baptized before they come into faith. In fact, there's at least a couple of passages that leave it open and where it's ambiguous. And so... Yes, it's a good argument. I totally understand uh, why my Baptist friends land on this in the way that they do. But it's important to recognize that despite this being the positive description of what we see, that that's not the only thing for us to actually think about. Now, in uh, fairness, th- th- there's a few more reasons the Baptist might offer as to why this would be the best practice, but I'm not going to go into it. This is definitely the strongest and the main argument. Against this... Uh, we might have a different understanding of what it represents. Oh, and I should say as well, the women Baptists talk about that baptism is a public declaration of faith, that really common phrase that you might have heard. That's nowhere in Scripture either. So we have the standard practice linking faith and baptism, but we don't actually ever see teaching or anything else that says that baptism is a declaration of faith. That's a deduction that they've made based on the way that those two things get linked together, but that's not something that Scripture positively teaches. Alright, so that's one way of looking at it. The other side is the Presbyterian or Reformed view, which is that it marks the entrance into God's covenant people. Now we're going to do a little bit of work here because this is what we might call a, a theological deduction from putting together different parts of scripture to get to this, uh, but I'll try and run through it simply enough and uh, you can ask me questions afterwards if you'd like. So basically this goes back to the Old Testament and the idea then that from the very beginning of God's covenant relationship with his people, he had these outward signs to represent the covenant that he had made with his people. And so with Abraham, we see that he gives him the sign of circumcision that's going to mark all those people who belong to the covenant with him. And so he says, that of circumcision, it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Whoop. He, goes in, oh, jumped ahead. he goes in a little bit later and says... My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right, physical representation of the covenant. It's so serious that it gets uh, brought into the law of Moses in Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. This became a hard rule. But what's important to recognize is that even in the Old Testament, we see this distinction being made between the physical sign of the covenant And the spiritual sign of the covenant. So it says there in Deuteronomy To the Lord your God belong the heaven, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff necked any longer. So the physical symbol of circumcision marks the physical sign of the covenant that God has been made between them. But even for those who bear the physical marker of circumcision, what they need is a spiritual circumcision where those wrong parts of themselves are metaphorically cut off in order that they might respond in obedience to the Lord. And when we jump forward to the New Testament, we see this pairing being made here again between physical and spiritual circumcision but being reconstituted around the idea of Baptism. So it says in Colossians 2, this is Paul writing here, he says, In him, to you believers, you were in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So there's a sense here in which in the Old Testament, physical circumcision and circumcision of the heart were linked together, but now we see circumcision of the heart and baptism being linked together. And so the way that Presbyterians in the Reformed tradition have taken this is that in the Old Testament, the physical sign of the covenant was circumcision. In the New Testament, the physical sign of the covenant that exists between believers is now baptism. And so, as we'll see in just a second, this leads to the reasoning that there's two different ways that you can do baptism. Yes, absolutely, it marks entrance into God's covenant on people. It can happen after faith in the case of new believers, absolutely. We, everyone's agreed on that. But it can also be given to children of believers, and faith comes later, in the same way that circumcision was given to children of Israel, but they still needed a circumcision of the heart that came through faith later. And so that's the logic that's at work there. That's, that's where you get these two different perspectives. And so it's really important to understand that because when we actually get to this question of who can be baptised, it really depends on your understanding in Scripture of how you're actually reading what it says about baptism and what it's meant to be symbolising because where you land on that will determine what you think about how people can be baptised. Okay? Okay. Um, All right, so let's talk about this a little bit. As I said before, who can be baptized? This is somewhat of a defense of the uh, Presbyterian position here. While there is no clear example in Scripture of infant baptism, there's also no prohibition on it. All right, so we are recognizing that we've made a theological deduction to a certain extent about the logic for baptizing babies based on the Old Testament covenant stuff. And we're sort of making the point here that, well, yes, that's a deduction from Scripture. It's really important to note there's nothing in Scripture that says that you can't do this. All right, so there's freedom to a certain extent there. We also have examples of households being baptized, and they could very well have included children. All right, so let me give you a couple of examples. It's, it's a bit ambiguous, but it, I want you to know what the deal is. So in Acts 16, uh, with Lydia, it says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged her, saying, If you have judged me faithful, Lord, come to my house. Now, here's the important part, okay? It doesn't say anything there about the faith of her household. It's really clear in the verse that after that after she comes to faith, after the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul said, she was baptized along with her household. So back then, the leader of the household carried a huge amount of influence. In this instance, it seems very possible that Lydia uh, might have been a widow because she seems to be treated as the head of the household here herself. And as a result of her coming to faith, everyone else in her household was baptized. And this very much fits with the culture at the time. Back then, whatever the religion of the head of the household was, it was expected that everybody else in the family would follow suit. Now, in other spaces in the Bible, it would push back on that idea, the idea that you need to make a decision of faith for yourself, absolutely. But the key point here is that we have at least one example of baptism where we're not specifically told about the faith of all those who come to be baptized. Right, there's a sense here in which perhaps the household was baptized, and now under Lydia's leading, they too would give a chance, have, be given a chance to come to faith. A little bit later, in that same chapter, we've got the our Philippian jailer. It says here that when he brought Paul and Barnabas out, he said to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Then it says, and he took them the same, from the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his all, all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set, before them, and set food before them. Now, You'll notice this is from the ESV translation. This is important. It says, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, you'll find a different translation in your NIVs. In your NIV, it will say something along the lines of that they rejoiced because they and their whole household had believed in God. And the reason for that is, is that the little phrase in Greek that says, With his entire household... It's ambiguous as to whether it goes with the first part, whether the with part is meant to be connected to the rejoicing or whether the with part is meant to be connected to the believing. And so again, it's ambiguous. I'm just letting you know that there is this other possible scripture that might also give us this picture of a particular person coming to faith and their whole household being baptized. Now, I said before, it could be that this includes children. Somehow, Sometimes households included children. Sometimes they didn't. There's no clear direction either way here that children were definitely included in this, or even if they were, what age they necessarily were. But at least we see this picture of a person coming to faith and then their household being baptised. In one instance, we're not told about the faith of the other people. In another instance, it's ambiguous as to whether they had faith or not. But there certainly seems to be space in Scripture for this possibility. And then finally, on this question of infant baptism, It's worth noting that infant baptism has actually been the standard practice through church history. So from the the second to third century onwards, there's no doubt that infant baptism was standard. So pretty early on, the church landed at this position of having infants included in baptism. And it was fairly recently in church history, like the, the last couple of hundred years, where believers' only baptism became the standard position for some previous to that, infant baptism was the standard position. Now, my Baptist friends would argue that's because the early church kind of got that one wrong, and absolutely, we can't trust church tradition in the same way that we can in Scripture, but it's also a weighty thing that for most of church history, one has been favored over the other. All right, so, so far, we've covered this idea that baptism is really important. We've talked about what baptism is. We've looked at what it symbolizes. We've talked about who can possibly be baptized. We've got this question also of how we can be baptized. I'm going to deal with this one really quickly. Uh, People argue. Some people really, really, really intensely argue over whether immersion or sprinkling slash pouring is the appropriate way that somebody should get baptized. Uh, The issues involved here is that, again, they argue over what baptizo actually uh, means. Does it mean just dip or immerse, or does it also mean wash? Because at different parts in history, it seems to have been used differently. The language of the New Testament is a bit ambiguous. So, for example, in Mark 1.9, it says that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Do they literally mean in it, or do they mean he walked into it and was baptized and came out of it? See? It's the same phrase, baptized in the Jordan, in or in. Uh, same thing with the Ethiopian eunuch, all right? Uh, they, it says that they came out of the water after he was baptized. Again, is that because they went under and came out or simply because they walked into the water to do the baptism itself? Ambiguous. Uh, and also, both have been practiced through church history. So people might sometimes ask me, uh, do you do immersion baptism? I'm very happy to. The Westminster Confession, which sort of guides Presbyterians here, beautifully ambiguous. It says, dipping is not necessary, Uh, sprinkling or pouring uh, is appropriate baptism, or something along those lines. It's basically, you can argue, is the first part saying you shouldn't do it, or just that you don't need to do it, and I will ride that ambiguity all the way home, all right? So... If we had a baptismal pool and you wanted to get immersed, I'd do it. Most of the time, we don't do immersion because we don't, don't have a pool up here, uh, but I'm certainly not a, averse to immersion baptism. I don't think that that's really the important part. The key thing is what the washing symbolizes. I don't think that inherit in the symbolism is whether the water is immersion or sprinkling. And if you ever get yourself in a fight with somebody who feels super strongly about this, just back away slowly. It's not worth it. Um, So, last thing in this uh, whistle-stop tour around baptism is that we need to recognize that this is really important, but it's not essential for salvation. My hope is, is that any of you here who are believing in Jesus and haven't been baptized will really strongly consider partaking of this symbol, because why wouldn't you? that's, That's the question of the Ethiopian eunuch. What is to stop me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing, like maybe a drought, Alright, that, that's it. Okay? The clear direction in Scripture is if you come to faith, no matter how old you are, that you can be baptized. So that's that's the first exhortation there. But at the same time, if you are a believer and not yet baptized, you should know that this, this doesn't bring your salvation into question or anything else like this either. So it says in Romans 10. Paul writing, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Nothing about baptism. Baptism is a powerful symbol that we rejoice in. It's a powerful symbol that means something. There's an urgency to getting baptized but it's not essential for salvation. What's essential for salvation as we celebrate every week is the cross of Christ. It's his death and resurrection and our belief and trust in him. And if you're visiting here with us this morning and you parachuted right into this very uh, internal Christian discussion about what baptism is, hey, it's so great you could be here for it. But more than anything else, our hope is that, as we've talked about this today, that you might want to take this a little bit further. We've got our Christianity Explored uh, program kicking off in Term 3. You're so welcome to come along and join us and learn more about this. We'd love to have you with us. You can talk uh, to the Next Steps desk or myself and get more details about that. But for now, uh, let me pray for all of us to rejoice in the baptism symbol that we have and to encourage any of you out there that might not yet be baptized who are believing in the Lord Jesus to do so without delay. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all he's done for us. And thank you for this symbol of baptism that you have given to us. This precious means of partaking in the grace of Christ given to us. Thank you for the way that it, it speaks to us in a really powerful, symbolic way of your work on the cross, where well, you died on the cross to cleanse us from our sins. You died and rose again, and through you we are jo- and through faith in you, we're joined to that and result in the resurrection life that we now have. Thank you, Father, for the way that it marks our, our entrance into your covenant people. And thank you, Father, for the gift that we have in in our circles here in the the Presbyterian Church of being able to extend that gift onto our children, to welcome them in, trusting that they will come to faith as we proclaim the word of the Lord to them here, our living church and beyond. And we pray, Father, that we might love and serve you well, honouring this practice that you've given to us, but most of all, Lord, seeing through that to your work on the cross and rejoicing in all that we have in it. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.